Welcome once again to It Is Complicated, the podcast where we answer every single question with It Is Complicated, including the title of this podcast, which is It Is Complicated. Hello, Dr. J. Hello, Josephine. How are you in time period that we are experiencing at the moment? Uh, I was explaining this yesterday to someone. A podcast came up and I said, you know, one of the foolish things that Jay and I did was that we insisted on starting the podcast every week with, and how are you doing? Which is, of course, a, a question that is ludicrously false because Jay and I have just been speaking for 20 minutes about how we're doing. So we know. But for your benefit, we do this sort of lovely social routine. And unfortunately, I no longer have an answer that's generic enough, but also funny enough. So all I do now is make noises. <laughs> because that's the only way I can express how I am. Um, today I am, uh, actually I'm all right. Thank you, Jane, for asking. How are you? Uh, I'm good seeing that I spent two and a bit hours driving today in a car with the air conditioning works. However, the coolant in the air conditioner died a while back. So it basically takes the air from the outside and wafts it gently in your face. if you have the windows shut so I had to drive the whole way with the windows open so I had the air from the outside blowing a gale in my face and I wasn't too sure which was the least unpleasant of those two options when you're bombing down the M3 that's kind of how I'm feeling that's a mood it's a mood also known as absolute dehydration I can imagine have you been hydrating now I am drinking vast amounts of liquids and eventually my body will go that's sufficient. Thank you. You've had enough liquid. <laughs> you could now go off to bed. So Helen. shall we introduce ourselves to the lovely <laughs> listeners, Josephine? Yeah, could you say that again? Because I laughed in the middle of it. And I know what I know I the editor. That. But I know that the editor personally, and I think she'd be upset with me. <laughs> so shall we introduce ourselves to the lovely people, Josephine? What a good and spontaneous idea, Jay. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> magic the magic of show business who are you jane uh, hey i'm dr jay i use they as a pronoun i represent the self-defining future i got to give myself the job title harbinger of change uh, because the software consultancy that i work at called ThoughtWorks allows people to do things like that and i got to give myself the gender transgressive non-binary gender queer because the country that i was born in allows people to do things like that officially as well what else about me I'm a troublemaker as if any of the last few minutes hasn't let you know that and a hashtag queer nuisance because well it's a good hashtag and I kind of own it I thought it was branding Jane it is branding but I mean I'm poning so many hashtags at the moment did you just say poning you've been hanging around (laughs) Fortnite players I could tell (laughs) did you pwn the noobs did you oh no I'm poning the turfs all right then you can do that I consider that to be winning. I pwn them. I pwn them hard. Oh, dear God. (laughs) You must. This is why I'm not allowed to talk in the vernacular. Let's stop there. (laughs) Hi, my name is Josephine. I am an academic and an artist. I used to be an actor who trod the board, so to speak. Uh, These days, I try to make a spectacle of myself by drawing funny queer people and putting them on the funny internets. You can find them on my Instagrams, amongst other places. I also am a lecturer in the subject of game design at the University 
of Uppsala Department of Game Design. I like to think of myself as a femme of international history because it sounds fabulous and I strive for that. That is who you are listening to. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> and we decided to talk about something one of the other listeners, because there are more than one of you, has asked for today. Yes, this a, a listener a, request. A listener request. Our first listener request. My lovely friend Tito asked if we would do a take on, on working from home that wasn't from a cis white middle class male perspective because there doesn't seem to be a lot of voices around people who aren't within that normative section. And I thought between the two of us, we cover quite a lot of those non-normativities and could talk about this notion of working from home and this notion of what we like about it and what we don't like about it, what we would change if we foresee this as being the new thing that it's going to be. And how would this impact on society? And I think we've done some of this already with our talks around coming out of lockdown is complicated and things like that. But I thought it might be interesting just to kind of tackle that notion of physically working from an environment where everyone you interact with for your working life is not physically present. They're all kind of virtual presences. I think it's a really good topic. It's something we sort of touched on on a number of occasions because of course, this podcast itself was a product of working from home and trying to find some way to do some of the creative things that you and I do. It was also in part to alleviate some of the stress and anxiety, mental health issues <laughs> that we're developing because of being in isolation, particularly because of needing to be in isolation and being different, is a particular set of experiences that are somewhat literally different. The other part is... We both also work on a production from home with Queer House Party. Work is not just defined as the day job, but it's also defined as some of the work that we do as producers, as people who work on crews for parties, um, on the backstage and things like that, as people who would put on performances, as somebody whose job is to give talks. I've given so many talks online. And it's kind of all of those other notions of work come into this as well. And how do those notions of work play around with this whole, this is the way that companies seem to be pushing a certain percentage of people? It's deeply complicated. It's sort of fascinating, really, because I hadn't thought of that. I mean, what jobs was I doing before even this happened, really, before uh, the pandemic? And, you know, the jobs that I was doing were already non-traditional. They were in different places in different spaces, but they were generally in person. But weirdly enough, being kind of queer and doing your own thing and doing things that are sort of non-normative, you do a lot of work from home anyway. So for example, if I was doing these sort of queer productions, I would do a ton of the writing here at home. If we were promoting our events, for example, even if they were in person, you do it all through Facebook and you do it all at home because so much of what we were doing was out of the norm and therefore not in an office anyway. So weirdly enough, there was a certain amount of this that I was, I guess, prepared to manage kind of quickly, I suppose. Or, you know, there's also flexibility. If you're going to be someone who needs to maneuver around systems, to maneuver around those kinds of structures that are not built for you, you're a little bit more used to being flexible and like going, well, okay, I'll work around this way. I'll work it around that way. And if you're used to doing that, then you're going to have an easier time adjusting to such a monumental shift like this 
in a quicker space. Having said that, even the monumental shift that no one was really prepared for, when it was being adjusted to, it was being adjusted to for a mainstream experience. So it's that thing of like, oh, well, um, everybody has to work from home now. Well, we'll use Zoom. And that presupposes that you can create a room in your home immediately that will appear to a professional standard enough for whatever it is you're doing so that you can do your job professionally and on Zoom, for example, without having to like navigate your whole private environment around that. So I think in a previous episode, Jay, you talked about someone living in a one room having to readjust their entire living environment just to create the illusion that you live in a space that would allow for a whole room to do your work from. In London, I used to live in lots of different places because that's what London's like. And if you're a queer in London, you definitely live in like a new place every six months usually. And it's almost always like a room in a shared house, a collective building or whatever the hell you can get. But it's usually small and it's probably one room by yourself if you're lucky, so to speak. And if I was trying to do this at that time in my life, that's how it would be. So (laughs) the room I'm currently sitting in doing this podcast with Jay is a de facto office that's separate from the rest of our living environment because we're lucky enough to have more rooms. But there were definitely times in my life in London when, because of the circumstances I was in, I was living in a room this size. So having a bed and a desk and then adjusting the room so that (laughs) I could create the television illusion of sitting in a semi-professional environment. You know, the breakdown of private and public Well, if you're an academic theorist such as I, you would have already broken that down in a post-structuralist way and said public and private are never entirely separate. But in this particular instance, the breakdown is particularly obvious. I have carefully curated a space in my living room that is for work that I can push away and have used the space for not work should I want to. But I've also curated what's behind me. I've curated what people can see of my life but I've also curated what I can look at and what I can see and what I can continue to be inspired by but that has been a real privilege because I've got the space and the resources to have a small desk and a chair and some computer equipment that I can just put away there were so many people who I know even some of the people I still work with are sitting in the same room that they were 18 months ago with the same desk that they had 18 months ago. And it's now a matter of convincing some of them that, look, we might not be going back into the offices for a while. What else can we get you? How can we change your setup? And I know that my technology setup has changed over these 18 months. The headsets become a little bit more used I now know exactly what technology I need to have where I've got a good setup I occasionally play around and move things around and tweak things but for the most part it's staying stable I'm aware of the advantages that I've had of being able to do this one of those privileges being is that my job is a job that I can do remotely not doing a physical task like hairdressing or shop work or retail or hospitality anything like that which requires those in-person services all of my work generally exists online and even my outside of work work the talks and running queer house party 
also has been able to be reimagined online. And when I say running Queer House Party, I'm, I'm running the tech, I'm not running the running. What's so interesting is that it's complicated in the sense that there is positives and negatives to this. So for example, mm. one of the things that I'm really aware of is that you can do it all from mm. your own home via the computer, right? That's interesting, isn't it? Because before this, you weren't doing it all from home for no. your computer. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there are plenty of in-person meetings that would be more advantageous to have in person. But the funny thing is there were so many jobs and so many opportunities that I know of my disabled friends, for example, who would say to their workplaces, to their bosses, to jobs they were looking for, hey, can I do this from home? Because your office is inaccessible or the journey towards the office is inaccessible. It would be much better for me to be doing this from home. And they were just flat out told, no, 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 is impossible, can't be done, cannot be adjusted to, cannot be made accessible. And then, of course, all of a sudden it was proved to be complete and utter bullshit because you absolutely could be doing it from home. And it would be just as effective, if not more so effective. So there's that aspect, right, that suddenly that this has been proven to be the case. What I'm really wondering is after things shift again, how quickly are employers going to try and drive employees back into offices? And will there be an opportunity, for example, for people with certain access needs or people who just don't want to go into office and they feel like they're more productive at home to remain there? Because I'm hoping, I really am, at the beginning of all this, I was saying, I really hope that this is a moment where we will actually see people understand and have an understanding shift that this is possible this is desirable this may be a really good opportunity for some people to be able to do this and then on the other hand of course there are the people who really don't want to be at home all the time so i'm thinking here of the horrifically tragic stories that i was seeing at the beginning of the lockdown of like LGBT people are suddenly having to move back in with family who are really, really mm. homophobic. People who were literally having to go back into the closet to go home. And it was just painful to watch. Mm. People who were having to suddenly be in domestic environments where they, they couldn't get anything done, right? Because they were the ones who were presumed to do all of these domestic work and suddenly there was so much mm. more of it because everybody was at home when you mentioned this topic jay one of the things that immediately sprang to mind was a piece of research that i read not that long ago because academics they do love to research and one of the things they love to research is themselves and so what they researched was academic research production during the pandemic and i'm sure you will not be surprised at all to find that one of the statistics was academic publishing actually increased from men. Of course. And decreased from? Women and underrepresented gender minorities. Yes. Of course it did. <laughs> right? So That's almost like not surprising in the slightest. It isn't, is it? And then statistics from <sighs> domestic violence organizations. And it's such a stark contrast between the experiences of some people and other people. Now, don't get me wrong, the stark contrast isn't as clear as one might say. For example, as I've said, there have been friends who I know who are disabled who've been able to work in a way that they never could have otherwise. And then, of course, there are other disabled people who've now lost their jobs, who mm -hmm. cannot find work another way because 
the online world is inaccessible as well to certain people. So it's not as easy as all that. But having said that, there is a very clear trend of this kind of adjustment being adjusted for the normative. And also mm. a little bit of a trend of wanting to get back to the normative once this is all over. Because there's always that talk um, about what will happen when this is done and where will we go yeah. and how will we be? So it's been interesting because thinking about where we go, where I take the team that I work with, do we stay online only? Do we think about being in the office at particular times? I'm all for let's meet up in the offices, but it will be for specific things and it will be to do specific work. One of the most interesting things is I've been doing public consultations for my client and we've been able to have sometimes even 60 people in a meeting that we wouldn't have been able to have that sort of presence and interactions if we were trying to do this face-to-face -face. because all of those people would need to travel to somewhere you'd need to organize it that to our meeting would actually take a day and a half out of people's lives all of this stuff whereas just running these two-hour meetings online and I'm like even if there is a back to the office whatever I still want to run these consultations in this way because it's become a very proven way of being able to get people's attention to talk through a problem to talk through a problem in a productive way and to me that's been a real win and a real advantage of going online thinking of advantages there is a really big digital divide coming up to do the stuff to work from home you don't just require the space and that's why housing prices have gone weird as fuck in London because essentially everyone's leaving the inner city and moving out to the suburbs where originally all of the queers went because they couldn't afford to live in the inner city and now everyone is almost doing a switch around and more and more and more people are, are moving to the outskirts of London and planning around commutes that are I will be in the office one or two days a week maximum not I will be in the office five days a week so I can afford to live further out I will be spending more time at home so I will take on a bigger house or rent a bigger place because I want that spare bedroom or I want that room I can turn into an office or I want to be just not in the same room all day and that's been really really fascinating as well but there's also a digital divide in terms of the job and the job if you don't have access to good internet, good power, good computing, all of the technology that you and I have so many peripherals that make this happen. And you can no longer do the stuff from just a dodgy laptop. One of the weirdest things is I work harder or more constant than I do when I'm physically in an office. I don't get those breaks. I get days of calls from 8 30 in the morning till seven o'clock at night if I'm lucky if I've managed to put in a two-hour block that says lunch I'll end up with half an hour within that time that will hopefully nobody has managed to book a meeting with me that I can go and actually grab some food you know again on the plus side it could be for example if all the work remained the same for many people, they could probably get through the work that they were supposed to do in a day in a shorter period of time because there's fewer distractions. And of mm -hmm. course, again, the plus side could be for people who have environments where if you're different and you go into a work environment where people are not so great, 
you mm. might have a more positive experience at home. But of course, the problem with that is that, like I just said at the beginning, was that the private public thing has been eroded even more, so much so that you feel like you are always on to some degree. Mm. And that's what's really difficult to manage because we're not used to doing that. And so there's, there's so much to this that I think is a universal experience of people who've had to try to do this. But of course, as always, the people who have experiences that are different, those issues are going to be exacerbated to some degree. We're going to be able to navigate some of it because of our experience of being different in all sorts of structures. So we're going to have some advantage in that. And then, of course, the disadvantage of not being able to do all the things that people who've got more mainstream experience, that people who've got more privileged experience are going to be used to. So, for example, this notion of having a second room to take away and have as an office, that also presupposes that, for example, childcare is taken care of. Especially, <laughs> I'm thinking of those times in the UK when the schools were shut. Not here, by the way, Sweden. But it's that thing of like, well, the kids are home and the pets need feeding. And, you know, you're trying to hold a meeting and do that at the same time. Is there someone in your life doing that? Does it happen to be a partner who's of a gender that's more marginalized? Are they more likely to be imposed on to do that sort of thing? Therefore, it's, it's all of that. All of these sort of like cultural experiences or this social cultural discourse is just plays out in the work environment which becomes the home environment which becomes the work environment and so yeah I think it's a really really interesting topic on a personal level the strangest thing was the the job I managed to get during the pandemic and I'm absolutely thrilled I got it I've never met any of the people I've worked with for the last well it'll soon be a year I've never met any of them I've, I have no idea. I, I, I used to spend a bit of time joking about this because I was like, you know, I'm in this, what, 16 by 9 box on your screen. You don't know I exist. I could be just a really interesting uh, AI. You know, I could just be an illusion. I'm a simulation, that sort of thing. It's fun. But it's true. I've never physically been in the same place. I've never met them. Most of them live on a piece of land that is literally detached from the piece of land what I live on. Some of them are in flat out different countries. Many of them are in different time zones. My students, I taught in the most fabulous way. I taught people who were literally half the world away. And that's kind of cool. And at the same time, I've never met them. Some of the students that I watched graduate and taught classes for, I never met. I've seen them on the screen. It's something. I'm in a similar situation. I have met some of my teammates and not others. Some of the teammates and I have been able to meet outside of work. My clients and I have never met. The people I've been working for since October, we've never been in the same office. They've never seen me. They've no idea how tall I am, anything like that. It was one of the advantages when I started all this was that I have spent some time being a performer and also performing on camera. So the second I knew that I was going to have to look for a job and then hopefully work at a job somewhat literally on camera all the time, the first thing I did was like, right, okay, how do I set up this room? So I changed this room entirely so that I'm facing the window so that all the natural light comes in through the window. The camera that the listener can't see is pitched upwards so that it's always looking slightly down on my face because that casts a better shadow with the direct light. For those times I don't have a direct light, the first thing I bought 
happened when the pandemic hit was a ring light. <laughs> I actually have, and you can't see this, of course, Jay, and the listeners certainly can't. In the corner of the room, I have a giant sleeper bag full of green screen equipment, which I bought at the beginning of this pandemic because I thought, right, there's a very real possibility that if I'm going to be doing anything online, I really want to have a really good green screen with really good lighting set up and just uh, do this work that way. So I was like, no, I know what to do. I'm also used to being a performer who's on stage a lot, as in the sense of like doing a performance for a long time on stage and not necessarily being the focus. So for example, I was in a, in a play where I was on stage the whole time, but I would do my lines and then withdraw, but also always be on the stage. So I know in that position, the one thing you can't really do is stop scratching your ass, right? Because you're constantly being viewed. So those skills were really handy, especially the first months when people are just getting used to this idea that they are being constantly stared at <laughs> through this camera. So I could use those skills. And I think a lot of people who are used to being looked at one way or another, it doesn't necessarily mean like as a performer or through a screen, were better at managing that and realizing how to cope with that. Whereas again, of course, those people who have the privilege of being able to walk through life without needing to worry about being stared at all the time, just carried on behaving the way they did <laughs> and still do. I think that's really an interesting thing where the glittery cockroach style of queerness has kind of given us a little advantage there. I mean, I can feel the advantage in that I'm not a great film editor by any stretch of the imagination, but I do understand some of the notions of putting together a 30 second film for promotion of something or how to do pacing and things like that and one of the interesting things that I've started doing is switching between gallery views and spotlights and learning how to hide seeing myself on screen so that you don't end up with that self-consciousness coming up but occasionally pulling it up so that I can monitor that I'm still in frame that I haven't moved out of shot that I haven't bumped the camera and that I'm waving my hands in the right kind of way. One of the weird things is I've almost gotten used to the sound of my voice, which sounds very weird, but the sound of my voice repeated back to me because of all of the recordings and having to listen to this stuff, but also doing lots of talks. I often have to sit there and watch the talk that's been pre-recorded and then do the Q&A afterwards. So you end up hearing yourself talk and watching yourself talk which is previously prior to this would have put me into just severe anxiety and self-consciousness over my voice, over the way that I look and that. And I'm just like, oh, that's what I look like on screen. That's what I look like every day when I do a call. It's now a nothing to sit down and do a talk or record something and talk to somebody. But that again is an advantage because I've had to do it over and over and over. And Josephine knows how many takes it took to get some of those first talks done. And now I'm not quite a one taker, but I'm very close to a one taker. I think it brings up some really interesting notions of privilege or advantages that people have. I don't have any childcare responsibilities so that I know that I'm generally not gonna be interrupted. I do have a child at home who requires childcare, naturally, being a child. And we've navigated things to such a degree that we were able to make it not become very obvious that that was the case. Or if it happened, it would almost always happen because the meeting ran long 
or something was out of the ordinary that we hadn't been able to pre-plan. But we've had to work pretty hard to make sure that that's the case, partly because I don't want our child to feel like they can't come in to talk to me during time at home because it's our child's home. And so it's not a workspace. Having a kid pop up, I have that with a couple of the people on my calls. Mm. Everyone's now used to those levels of interruptions or the better places are because this is not a workspace, even though work is happening within it. And this becomes one of those interesting luminal spaces of betweenness, of between two states, because it is not a binary. Is a space where I'm sitting talking to Josephine my workspace or a place where I work within my home? And does that make my home my workplace? Depends entirely on how you define things. Because if, for example, you think of, say, housework as work, and I'm thinking here now of the calculations of the feminists in the 70s and 80s, but prior to that as well, of like calculating what is the worth of housework and who's doing that work for how many hours a day, right? But then isn't the home a workspace already? It just depends on who you are and who's Mm. presupposed to do that work. So the idea of like, well, you can work this many hours during the day because you have someone to take care of your child who happens to be there as well. That gives you that opportunity and who is doing that and who's presupposed to doing that. That's the issue. And that's the thing about when you said that our listener had suggested this, I was like, no, this is a really good topic because it brings up all of these things that we think of as normalized and therefore invisible. That's the thing about these issues is Mm. that they become so normal. We as human beings are so good at forgetting things that are normal because that's how our, our psychology works. That's how our brain works. If something is normal and constant, you stop seeing it doesn't exist anymore. It's a psychological thing. It's even physiological. But the Mm. funny thing about changes that are this stark, where everybody suddenly has to change their behavior, is that it pushes into sharp relief those things that we think of as normal. So all of a sudden, we have to consider like, hey, do all of our jobs have to happen at the office? Could they happen at home? Could they be more accessible? Could we make our work happen in a different, more accessible way? That broke that norm, right? Suddenly, we're aware of certain things, but we're still willing, I think, culturally to be completely, utterly ignorant of so many other things. And we're desperate to get back to the normative in other ways as well. Hence the statistic about academic publishing. It's like, Mm. well, yeah, of course, because it's a perfect metric for this. I think one of the things that I saw, there was a lot of reaction to various companies and CEOs saying we should work from home or we shouldn't work from home or I'm going to demand everyone come back in the office. And most of the people kicking back at that were cis white straight men who had set themselves up for working from home who had bought the bigger house or set up the second room and done all of this and some of the narrative is like I enjoy being able to spend time with my family and it's like that's great what were you doing before and I think it's also brought into quite interesting highlight the things people were giving up for some of this office work the things people were giving up those 60 70 hour weeks don't feel so good when you can't go out drinking at the end of them don't feel so good when you finish it and you're stuck at home and you realize you could have been spending four hours in the other room doing stuff with the kids or doing stuff with somebody else and not just sitting there working and that I think is potentially also going to change people's attitude as well as to how much work 
my employer gets from me for the salary what is the expectation of how many hours that I work because that's why I use the word liminal space because there becomes a blurring of a line between work and home life that's constantly there because like I popped on now to do this call but I've also popped off three email messages and sorted a few things out while I was waiting for Josephine and I'm like it's late on a Sunday I should not be doing that I should have only been dialing in to talk to Josephine and this becomes that blur of like it's not work time why am I working I'm actually rather looking forward to an update of the OS that I'm working on that will allow me to go I'm in work mode and I'm in non-work mode and hide a pile of stuff from my machine which will force me not to do some of the stuff that I do and kind of give me a better separation because workaholics with working from home you've not got that pull of I need to go home you're already home and it's just 10 minutes worth of work it's nothing three four hours later you realize what you've been doing with a radical enough shift you can see what's not usual Mm. you know what we call normal suddenly becomes clearer getting that perspective right it's a psychological thing of like it's just how you survive trauma I've been trying to avoid saying this but it is true this is psychology of trauma is that if you're in a horrific situation for long enough you will start to see it as normal because mm. that's just how we work because that's how you survive it's how you function and so if one were to say that say culturally there are certain problematic discourses say around work and what is required of you and what is expected of you that becomes normal just throughout the world and then when you make a radical enough shift like oh everybody has to go home you start to suddenly reflect on that and we have done culturally but only to a certain degree and there's plenty of cognitive dissonance where people are like well but I I that normal was really comforting even though I know it wasn't very good for me and then of course all the other problems that come along with that like for example depending on your access to certain things your work technology is now probably the same technology that you were using prior to this as your way of relaxing so the computer that you would come home to to play a video game or to check social media or to do whatever you were doing is now also the computer that you work at, unless you happen to be privileged enough to have two or to have technology that doesn't have to suddenly be repurposed to work. For example, your phone now suddenly for a lot of people has become the thing that they now also run their work Zoom calls from or whatever. So that liminal space has become even more blurred. And so there's a lot to unpick here. And you're right, the the things that I read in the news are definitely a specific narrative of how this has affected a specific group of people, namely, usually the most normative. And so for those people who are different, who have different needs, yes, this has been positive and negative, but of course, as always, it's just filled with the same discourse. Now, does it give us certain opportunities to be more hopeful? I think so. For example, I haven't been to a queer club in quite many years prior to the pandemic. The pandemic introduced me to Queer House Party, which is an online queer nightclub and performance space. 
and I adore it. And I adore it so much, I started working for it. Is, you know, <laughs> sorry, God, I felt like I was an advert for a minute there. But this is an event that happens online specifically because this community was meeting in places like bars and, and party spaces, because those were our cultural hubs, because that's where we could meet. If you were not being able to be out at work or at home, you could go to a club and be out there. That was really important. So when the pandemic hit, Queer House Party was the response to that. Like, hey, we still need this space. And a lot of people are at home and they're stuck and they're not able to express themselves. They need this. We need this. And suddenly there was this online event and Jay introduced me to it. And the first night I went, I went as an attendee. And I was like, my God, I'm able to attend something in this virtual space in a way where I can be at home. So whatever access needs I have can be mitigated to some degree because I don't need to go out and I don't need to have a physical environment. Like there isn't one here at the moment that I can attend. So, wow. And then there are all these amazing queers who I'm suddenly meeting who I would never have physically met, never once. I would never have met the organizers. We just simply aren't in the same city. We would not have been able to cross paths otherwise, maybe through some sort of Facebook contact or a Twitter thing or something, maybe, but truth is probably not. And now I have this online space. And what's really great about Queer House Party is that they've realized that that online space is important even after all of this. So we're carrying on. And I really, really like that. So there is that ability to reactive with difficult opportunities that ability to create new things from what seems like an impossible space that is that queer glittery cockroach i mean i'm super proud of the fact that we're staying irl and url and we're talking about it in those terms of like in irl in real life here are the things that you're going to be able to get url online here are the things that you're going to be able to get and those two things are also blended the URL experience is not seen as secondary, it's seen as integral, which to me is really, really important. It's not, oh, we've got a live stream of this event and it's one camera in a corner and it keeps cutting out. It's the event online is used to provide some of the access for in real life. So the two things are completely blended. Our BSL interpreter is the same BSL interpreter. Our captions show up in both places. One is not seen as secondary to the other. They actually inform each other and they impact on each other. Yes. So the ESL interpreter, Max, who lives in Nottingham, who does not live in London, is able to do their job from their home with a camera and be in London and everywhere else because we have this online component. And so like anything else, the cultural discourse that is prevalent at the time will always go into any social space that's created, whether that be online or not. But those social spaces can provide opportunities. And so like anywhere, you always look for the cracks. If you're looking for the differences for the people who are different, you look for the cracks in the system, the system that they sort of wedge their way through or wedge open or change or maneuver around. It shouldn't have to be that way. And it makes me angry. It makes me sad. It makes me tired. So yeah, when I read, you know, statistics about, the normative experience of being able to work at home and people going well I'm so used to it now and I've made this office and I bought this big new house so why should I go to work and I go fuck you (laughs) but then I also think of my disabled friend who can now do their job because they're at home and I think okay 
And then I think of like, yeah, but okay, now we have this technological issue and the breakdown of the private public and, oh, that's a nightmare. But then I think of like, hold on, I would never have been able to do my job the way I have been if this hadn't been the way it is. And the colleagues that I've met, which is this lovely group of people who I work with uh, on this project that we're trying to do, which is actually all about trying to make academia more sustainable to avoid the kinds of burnout that often happen from working as intensely as one does in this environment. I get to meet them because we're online. We would never have been able to meet if it hadn't been for this. So it's not one thing doing it this way, but the marginal experience is always marginal, but that does not mean it cannot be creative and different. and does not mean it cannot function to the advantage that we have of being this flexible around it. But of course, we're always gonna have to navigate Sadly, the inequities of coming at this from a marginalized experience. I think that summed it up. Maybe. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to drop this mic, Jay. It's quite expensive, but I bought it right at the beginning of the pandemic. (laughs) And mine's attached to my headset, so of course I can't. Did I tell you that I watched Speed the other day? Have we done that? You you did not tell me that you watched Speed the other day. How was it? Was it breathtaking? I... I enjoyed it a lot. It was breathtaking. (laughs) Is that the first one that he really got into stunts for? Because I know that he did Point Break before it. I don't know how much of his stunts he did in Point Break, which again is also on my watch list. You haven't seen Point Break? Yeah. Possibly saw it once in a million years ago. So lucky you get to watch Point Break for the first time. (gasps) I know. I know it's got Patrick Swayze in it as well. It's spectacular. It is so bad. And it's so good. It's so bad, but it's so good. But isn't that just a Keanu movie? Now, not to diss him or his breathtakingness (laughs) or anything about his choices of movies, but he is. He's so bad. They are spectacularly good and spectacularly bad all in the same breath. He is clearly acting. I am acting now i'm gonna act my butt off you know like i'm just gonna act at you (laughs) it's so so fucking bad (laughs) it's really something no i can't wait for you to watch it watch it let's (laughs) talk about it we should watch together that's what we should do anyway okay so let's not sorry dear listener we have actually genuinely got on attention this time normally this is something of a jape but actually i think it's becoming more and more serious we may have to do an offshoot podcast but i do happen to know at least from one listener who i spoke to recently that they very much enjoy our discussions of canaries well he is breathtaking in speed i can admit should we We call it there we should stop this podcast shouldn't we but we've been going 50 miles per hour and it might blow up anyway moving on thank you dear (laughs) listener for listening to this heavily edited by now podcast because that's what it's going to need it's been an absolute delight as always thank you for listening please do join us next time in the meantime if you are interested please do consider checking out our patreon patreon.com slash it is complicated or one word if you would be interested in supporting the podcast the money that we gather there goes to getting some guests on which i'm hoping we could do again soon If you're debating joining it, you're getting sneak previews of the little side project I'm working on, making a zine out of the first 10 episodes of It Is Complicated. So you'll get some sneak previews of what some of the zining looks like in some of the drafts, if that makes you at all vaguely excited. It excites me. It sounds lovely. 
So please <laughs> do check that out. And if you can't or don't want to, feel free to join us regardless. We love you either way. And thank you again for being here with us. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.